The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Brazil Resources, Canamax Resources, Caden Resources, Metanor Resources, and Nanostruck Technologies. I've titled today's show, Examining the Anglo-American Monetary and Geopolitical Fraud. The fraud of the U.S. monetary system started on a small scale, with the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913, as G. Edward Griffin pointed out on the very first show that I conducted on Voice America back in March of 2009. But not even the Federal Reserve could have done all of that much damage to the financial markets and the U.S. economy had it not been for Richard Nixon's dastardly deed of detaching the dollar from gold on August 15, 1971. Nixon said it was uh, a temporary measure to kick the uh, currency speculators in the teeth and to help the common man. But more than 43 years later, the global monetary system is still not backed with gold or anything else of value. And not only has the absence of gold from our monetary system failed to stop speculators, it has increased speculation by the banksters, which are able to print endless amounts of money by simply keystrokes of a computer. That, indeed is what quantitative easing is all about. It is the creation of money by the rich and powerful corporate interest out of nothing, and that money is being used by those who have control of it to rob you and me and every other average hardworking person of their wealth. It is a social injustice that relatively few people know and understand outside of the Austrian School of Economics. The only prominent national politician in recent decades who has voiced concern about this and really understands it has been, of course, Ron Paul, and perhaps we can hope his son Rand Paul understands it as well, though I'm not convinced Rand has the courage of his father to stand up for a gold standard when push comes to shove, if it might mean uh, that he would lose a political office. But I do digress. Let's get back to the real reason Nixon should have been impeached, namely the trashing of the international gold standard. When Nixon closed the gold window in 1971, it enabled the United States to get bigger 
and bigger into debt. And to finance the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about as he was leaving office. The world economy and the financial markets have become extremely unstable as a result of this irresponsible activity of debt money that could not have happened, for sure it could not have happened, had Nixon not detached the dollar from gold in 1971. But to make the paper or digital money standard work, the gold price had to be suppressed, and a constant propaganda of Keynesian economists, guys with PhDs behind their names from prestigious universities like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, had to be trotted out to tell all of us how stupid we are for thinking gold should be money. The main topic of today's show is exactly about how the price of gold is capped at well below its true intrinsic value, even as the Chinese and Indians are demanding gold like never before. They're buying gold and importing. In fact, the Chinese imported more gold than was produced all of last year. In just a couple of minutes, David Jensen will be with me to explain how major bullion banks are suppressing the price of gold in order to keep the massive Ponzi scheme orchestrated by the Federal Reserve alive and well. And as I just mentioned, President Eisenhower, who left office with the international gold standard still intact, was very worried about the military-industrial complex controlling our government. Now, before you decide to assume that all you hear from our mainstream press about how evil Putin is and how wrong he is for invading the Ukraine... I hope you will stop to listen to a more balanced view of geopolitics when Daniel McAdams stops by at about 3.30 today. Daniel heads up the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Finally, in the closing moments of today's show, I will talk about a very exciting guest next week and also update you on Novo Resources. That's a story that we first told you about when Dr. Quentin Henning stopped by here a couple of weeks ago. Novo has risen by about 75% since Dr. Quentin Henning was on this show back on February 18th. I do think that now is one of the most exciting times to buy gold mining shares that I have seen since I started writing my newsletter in 1981. And I am bullish on gold mining shares now in part because of what David Jensen has to say about the gold price manipulation and why he thinks ultimately the suppression of the quoted price of gold will be overcome by the natural laws of economics. Well, I understand that David is with me now, so let me tell you something about David Jensen. David is a professional engineer graduating in 1987 with a degree in engineering from the University of Waterloo in Canada. He uh, has worked through 1993 on the F-5 fighter overhaul program and the Bombardier regional jet programs. David then graduated uh, in 1997 with a degree in corporate and commercial law from the University of Calgary and an MBA majoring in logistics and supply chain management. That was in 1999. He returned to the aviation industry, but then after reading Austrian economics, Uh, David transitioned to the mining industry in 2004 as a consultant. He uh, later then became vice president of corporate development for Western Copper Corp., followed by a stint as president and COO of Skyline Gold. David currently serves as president and COO of a private mining company and provides strategic operational risk assessment and precious metals consulting services through his consultancy, Jensen Strategic. Welcome, David, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Good morning, Jay. Really good to have you with me. We uh, have met up a couple of times. I know when you were uh, more, when you, I think it was when you were actually working for Western Copper Corp. Yeah. And that's when I first met up with you and realized that uh, that I had a kindred spirit as an Austrian person who really looks at Austrian economics as probably the most legitimate uh, school of thought in in uh, in the real world. So it seems as though you were you were very much a mainstream citizen working as an engineer in the defense industry before you read Austrian economics, and then it looks like 
you might have caught a virus called the gold bug virus. What what were what was there about Austrian economics that caused you to focus on gold gold and gold mining in general? Oh, it's a good question. I think for me, I had always uh, had difficulty with the dot com bubble in the late nineties, and um, I can still remember the first day that an individual mentioned to me that um, that the gold market was not a freely trading market, and that was actually I know it to the day it was September thirteenth in two thousand one, right after nine eleven. Hmm. We were sailing uh, down in the San Juan Islands, and one evening um, after dinner, a, a very bright guy that I know, who's a, a geologist, said to me that um, you know that the gold market didn't trade freely and that it may be manipulated. And this was just post my MBA, um, you know, where I'd been taught things like efficient capital market sure. theory, and um, I was reading you know Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Business Week. Those were my sources of information. Mm-hmm. And that kind of comment um, was really outside of my frame of reference. And as a consequence, I just rege- I rejected it out of hand mm-hmm. um, because it didn't fit with my worldview, um, right? You know about how markets work and how you can't manipulate them because there's too many eyeballs on the markets, mm-hmm. and really minds behind those eyeballs is the key. And then I heard two more times over the next uh, 18 months or so the same comment that it looks like the gold market isn't trading freely and fairly and that it's distorted and, and uh, manipulated. And at that point, I thought, you know, I, I can't ignore this. I really have to look at this and dig a little bit deeper and, you know, being having a curious mind, um, I, you know, I, I started to read about it um, and dig into it. Um, at first, you know, I, I tried to bend my frame of reference to adopt the, the analysis or the thought behind it, and I found it too difficult. So I had to really look at it from, you know, get to the point where I could uh, contemplate it uh, with personal comfort and hold it outside of my own frame of reference and then look into what was going on. And, you know, back to the the point of the dot-com bubble, because of my um, discomfort with that, I I started to bump into Austrian economics at the same time that I was reading about gold. And so the Austrian school, you know, it says that by uh, creating money from nothing, it leads to speculation and and misallocation of capital. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this really answered my questions in terms of how could this dot-com bubble have happened and, and distorted the economy so much. And, um, you know, the, the answer is, of course, that, uh, you know, you do it with a, a, a tremendous increase of the broad money stock uh, or of the money stock in general. And, um, you know, I, I guess it brings the, the two thoughts have to be brought together, uh, you know, the, the price of gold and, and the issue of, of the money stock and, um, uh, you know, how, how the economy eventually became, became so um, distorted and, and really... To blow the dot com bubble, the, the dot com bubble, really two things had to happen. One was that the the price of gold had to be contained so that the increase in the money stock wasn't um, being advertised, and we also had to have a um, a distorted uh, inflation measure at the same time, um, so that the money stock could be increased by the central bank, um, but we could say we were in a period of great moderation. And um, you know, when we look at uh, Larry Summers, who was in the Treasury in the early nineties. Uh, he had written a paper on Gibson's paradox, which really said that interest rates had, over a 200-year period, in an uncontested fashion, had had tracked with uh, the, the price level of gold itself, and not with uh, so much the CPI level or, or other measures. But at the same time, you needed to distort the CPI and say there is no uh, inflation out there. We aren't create, creating too much money. So, kind of a, a roundabout answer, but it really contains several aspects. And and so, the, the, to sum it up, uh, Austrian school of economics is the ultimate frame that I think that we can look at the the world around us in terms of the economy and and what money does to the economy. And the the gold element to that was that you you really had to contain gold if you wanted to run loose monetary policy, and uh, really juice the financial markets. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so you so you firmly believe that the one point seven percent inflation rate or so that the government comes up with is is bogus. Yeah, I, I mean, if we look at you know the values and prices of things today versus historically, when I talk historically, I mean over the last decade. You know, we have hundred dollar oil and we have three dollar copper. I mean, oil used to be twenty dollars a barrel. Um, copper used to be fifty cents a barrel. Uh, food prices are increasing. The housing prices. Uh, I live in Vancouver in Canada, and and a thirty three foot lot with a teardown house is one point seven million dollars. Mm. So there's something going on that's that uh, is not normal, and and the best way that I've found to understand it is to understand what loose monetary policy does in terms of initially stimulating a speculative bubble, and ultimately several years later, but as a consequence nonetheless, causing higher prices of all goods, as the money washes out of financial markets into into real assets. Okay, so in order to continue to increase the money supply, the inflation rate had to be distorted. It had to, people had to believe that there was no an inflation problem. Yeah. And I guess if the gold price starts to take off, then that also is an indication that something isn't right, that the currency or that we have an inflation problem. Is that right? That's right. I mean, uh, gold is the primary warning system. And what you do is you shut down the warning system. And then if you want to use an analogy of a, of a nuclear reactor, you run it at 150% power. And you say, wow, you know, uh, stock market's going crazy here. Um, but all our warning systems are showing everything's good. This must be the great moderation. Everything's good. You know, it must be computers that are doing this. And the, and the, the Internet, we're into a new era of, uh, you know, price earnings multiples of 30. And, and that's normal as far as the eye can see. Yeah, so do you so you believe that that was that was necessary to create the dot com bubble, and I, I would imagine also the housing bubble then too, right? The, yeah, the sub well, the housing bubble started in the mid nineties at the same time, but it really accelerated post two thousand. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was essential to to get those pieces in place and still have a a uh, you know what I would call plausible deniability. You just say, oh, this is the great moderation. Gold is flat. CPI is flat. We've mastered all the markets, and and uh, things are going to go uh, exponentially higher into the future, and that's uh, not to be worried about. Okay, David. So why, you know, here's the issue that I have. What I don't quite under. Well, I I, I have my own theories, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. We're getting all indications that the f- demand for physical gold coming out yeah. of China, India, and other Asian countries is is yeah. beyond anything we've ever seen in history before. Tremendous True. amounts. And as uh, as I understand, in China alone, there was more demand and importation of gold last year than the total amount of gold produced in the whole world. Yeah. So how in the world, you know? And yet we've seen the gold. Gold price peak at about nineteen hundred dollars as yeah. quantitative one and quantitative easing two and so on and so forth. Then all of a sudden the gold price gets you know hits the skids from nineteen hundred to around eleven hundred. Now it's bounced back a bit, but in at the very time that this tremendous amount of gold was being imported into China, not to mention that China is now the largest gold producer itself and keeping every ounce of gold that it produces. Mm. So this suggests to me that there is a gold market uh, manipulation. I believe you believe that, but but is how how would that manipulation be carried out? Well, there's really multiple elements in your in your question there, and I, maybe I can just touch on the the level of demand in China. Sure, um, please. The uh, Kuz Jansen, uh, who's in the Netherlands, runs a website called In Gold We Trust, and he's tracking the actual uh, physical withdrawals from vault um, at the Shanghai Gold Exchange. 
And the Shanghai Gold Exchange is really a, it's a true exchange where they uh, you have to deposit deposit a bar to write a contract, so you can't sell something you don't have. And each bar that's put in there has a, a unique serial number. And once it's withdrawn from vault, you can't return it unless you melt it down and and create a new bar and get a new serial number, which is uh, you know logistically uh, costly. So you've got a real exchange there giving real demand demand data. And what we're seeing now is last year in 2013 that the the demand from China doubled versus 2012, and and it went to about 2,200 tons um, in Shanghai. And then there's the Chinese government demand, which um, is uh, on top of that, which they do not announce. So China really consumed as much gold last year in 2013 as all of the world's uh, gold mines produced globally. And, you know, I, I give, uh, you know, the analogy of the of the Chinese market, the, the physical demand uh, in China and globally as well, is that we really had a, uh, the equivalent of a five-alarm fire um, in the physical gold market. And at the same time, we had a 25% drop in the price. And so, to me, that is, uh, and I think to any uh, observant person, that would be a, an illustration that the that the physical gold market, and with those um, markets, I mean the, the true markets, like um, where there's demand actually is being drawn down heavily and primarily as physical, uh, versus the the London and the New York, uh, the LBMA and the COMEX markets, showing that there's a, a disassociation between these. Um, physical markets being the physical, uh, the, the physical bullion market, and the paper markets, which are the London and New York markets, and that they, they appear to be only marginally connected to one another. You can't have a, a global increase. Uh, you know, China was 100%, and and globally, what I the best that I can tell is that there's been about a 50% increase in physical demand last year. Um, the World Gold Council numbers don't show that, but I think it's uh, you know Eric Sprott has made the point that this uh, the World Gold Council numbers don't hold up to, to scrutiny. So tremendous increase in physical demand and a and a collapse in prices don't go together. That's not how markets work. So, you know, it's driven in London by the the daily fix where we've got six banks um, that are clearing members. And at the center of this, which people don't often mention, is the Bank of England that's really acting as a market maker for the trading. So we've got the Bank of England, which is a a regulator, um, acting with the the banks, uh, the, the bullion banks that are trading there. And when we look at the London bullion market, we see that they're trading there, that they're trading gold instruments and not gold itself as they are in Shanghai. And uh, to give us a sense of uh, what these instruments are, that you know, the Reserve Bank of India itself said a couple of years ago, they estimate that there's 92 to 1 leverage. And uh, oh. by the way, the COMEX is about that leverage right now with about 92 contracts uh, in ounces versus every ounce that's actually available for delivery in, in the market. So they're trading instruments and they're not trading gold. And they do this with their unallocated or, or pooled gold accounts, which allow them to create gold instruments without the gold backing. So mm-hmm. they've really, they're creating gold from nothing. And they're trading this, if you want to call it nothing gold or gold instruments. They're trading that every day to create to, or to set the price of gold. And, you know, the ability to create gold from nothing, it's not just one-to-one. Let's say there's uh, 50% gold and 50% paper. But they're approaching uh, or at the 100-to-1 level of, of, uh, of paper versus gold. So we can see here that they're, they can create gold without limit. Thus, they can dilute the gold available to market without limit mm-hmm. and really set the price at will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, but it makes no sense. I mean, but people aren't. So what you have is an illusion. You have an illusional market, and then you have a real market. You have the real market, which is measured uh, by 
uh, physical movement of gold into China and other Asian yes. countries. And then yeah. you have what is sort of a, a fantasy game that's being played. Both Some people take the long side, some people bet on the short side. And, and then what happens? They, those, those contracts get canceled out, I guess, before delivery date. Is that what happens usually, David? Um, yeah, it's, it's a circular trade. And um, you know, there's a very good paper written on this subject, and it's, it's by Goldcore. If you go to the goldcore.com website and search that name, it's, it's Marco Byrne um, who runs the, the site. And it really is an excellent sort of source of data. And they, they put out a study in uh, July of 2013, so a little over six months ago, and it's called LBMA Data Beyond the Smoke and Mirrors. And what they identified in this analysis was that the London market trades about uh, 9,000 tons a day of gold. And that's uh, in gross trading before the end of day netting, where they cancel out the, the, the net uh, trading between the various uh, bullion houses. And so what we have there is 9,000 tons traded versus about 10 tons that's mined globally each day. Hmm. So they're trading, you know, on a daily basis, they're, they're trading 900 times as much gold as produced globally. And so what we have there is... is you know, high-frequency trading methods can be used, and they, they create such a clatter through the volume of trading that you really lose the ability to identify the price signals that are sent by, set by actual purchases of, of gold. And it's, it's, really not a, a, it's really not a gold market. It's, it's, a, it's a derivatives trading market, which used to be a physical market, but it, it apparently tra- uh, changed in the late 80s where they allowed the creation of these gold instruments. And so now, you know, back to your point, is we really have a, a form of price control. Mm-hmm. You you can create and trade gold without you know without limit, and you can call it gold trading, and you can set the price of gold with that, and that allows you really to steer and set the price uh, wherever you wish. The limiting factor being really the the level of physical offtake. Okay, David, who do you think uh, the players are that are doing this? Uh, do, do you have any ideas? Well, I mean, and and what tra- would and, and I guess also what would be their motives for doing so? I mean, if yeah. I'm a trader sitting at a at a large banking institution, I'm concerned about making a profit any way I can, right? I'm yeah. I'm and if I've got some sort of a uh, computer model that allows me to pick somebody else's pocket, yeah. so so be it. Is yeah. that uh, so? At that level of the individual trader, I would imagine the individual trader is just simply saying, "How can I enhance my own bonus at the end of this year?" Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a I think it goes a little deeper than that in that we, you know, our financial system is based on, on a debt money system. Mm-hmm. And so you create debt upon debt upon debt, as we, we have done now over the last several decades. We've got a, a, you know, a global bond market that's $100 trillion. And ultimately, um, it is a house of cards. It's a, a bit of an overused analogy, but it's really a perception-based financial system. And what they're doing by steering the price of gold is that they are really affecting the perception of the value of gold, and so the, the really the price, the price is really this, uh, a sentiment creator of gold. Mm-hmm. So, allowing the price to run up or smashing it down creates a sentiment in human beings that okay, this is of value or it's not of value. The price right. rose, it's good; it's falling, it's bad. And you know, you really, you really have to control in this uh, financial system of perception based on perception anything which is a measure or an indicator of inherent value like gold or other uh, real assets and peter warburton who is an economist from the uk wrote an excellent paper in 2001 and it was called debasement of world currency um it is inflation but not as we know it and and what he said in that article there was that really that they were creating uh, uh, inflation through monetary inflation which is the austrian school uh, framework mm-hmm. and 
that ultimately you can control the the value of assets through derivatives with a couple hundred billion dollars, um, which is a fraction. Uh, you know, it's point two trillion dollars versus the hundred trillion dollar debt market that, out there that's sustained um, by this circular uh, trading and, and, and transfer of, of money. So you know, the creation of money really allows you to do a number of things, but it allows you to control the economy. It allows you to blow bubbles and extract wealth uh, from the financial se- with the financial sector. It also allows you to control government. If you control uh, the central banks and influence the central banks, you can turn down the economy um, and squeeze out governments who aren't performing. So there's all kinds of potential elements there in terms of you know who controls what and why would they do such a thing. You know, David, um, uh, just to interrupt you, you yeah. mentioned the name Larry Summers a while ago yeah. and his understanding of, of the need to keep the gold price suppressed or the inflation suppressed uh, in an era when you're increasing the money supply. Are you talking about the people involved here might be policy ma- uh, policymakers at that level? Yeah, I think that they have to be. I think what you have is uh, you have a revolving door system, and you've got your regulators like the Fed, um, which is really a, a banking cartel-operated monetary system. Um, the Fed is owned by the banks. The shareholders are the banks. Then you've got government agencies and treasury officials, and then you've got banks um, and the financial sector. And between these three levels of regulators, um, at the central banks, you've got your government, treasury, and, and your financial sector. There's a revolving door that goes between these three sectors. And, and ultimately, people serve in all three of those different levels. And ultimately, um, you know, Larry Summers went to Citibank and made tens of millions of dollars. Robert Rubin went to Citibank and made hundreds of millions of dollars after being a treasury official. Um, and Robert Rubin, for that matter, came from, uh, from Goldman Sachs before he went to treasury. Mm-hmm. So you can see right there is an, an illustration Alan Greenspan was a director of J.P. Morgan Chase, mm-hmm. and, and before he went on the speaking circuit, so uh, you know there is no real delineation between these three levels. You can't say that we need more regulation because the regulators are the financial industry, and so what we really have here is a, is a capture of government by the financial system. Well, okay, so the so the markets are not allowed to work. They've been using the gold price. Uh, as a means and also I, I would argue some manipulation of the consumer price indices and so forth you've created an illusion that things are a lot better than they really are the debt burden is growing very dramatically it's clear to me that the western world at least is in a, is in a, a, a real difficult situation where there's no way the debts can be repaid because as you pointed out we have a debt monetary system now a debt based monetary system unlike a gold based system which is an asset based system there's no intrinsic value I like to say that debt is the raw materials from which uh, money is created in our current fiat money, paper, digital system. So um, how is this going to shake out? If, if the price mechanisms are not allowed to work, how long can this go on, David, until something happens? And what do you think will happen? How do you think it's going to resolve itself? Well, the limits, people have often asked me, you know, how long is this going to last? And I don't think anybody knows that with certainty. But what we can see is that we've got price controls in effect. And the price controls are there by the, you know, the driving down of the gold price and, and uh, um, the fixing uh, of the gold and silver prices and, and other commodities through uh, trading of digital instruments. The problem that we have and the limit to this uh, uh, is, is, Jay, that you, you, if, you, if you have price controls, we know from the 1970s that price controls lead to empty shelves. Mm-hmm. 
And what we can see now is that with the level of offtake um, really running at, at a torrid pace in 2013 and then increasing uh, greatly this year already from the 2013 level, we can see that the real assets are being swept off the market. Prices of things like fine art and diamonds uh, are, you know, are, are doubling in value in about an 18-month period. So there's something that is going on there. Um, and at the same time, we look at the, the level of offtake of physical gold and we can see the continual increase in the, the sweeping away of the physical gold with a very limited amount uh, supplied to the market. And the, the, when it all stops or when it all changes is when there is a problem securing gold in the market in return for currency. And this is, um, you know, John Exter has the inverted pyramid. Uh, John Exter was a, a board of on board of governors of the Federal Reserve, and he, and he made Exter's pyramid in the 1970s, mm-hmm. which showed gold at the peak of an inverted pyramid of all the other financial instruments on top of it. And the problem that we run into is when you cannot secure physical gold in return for fiat currency. And that really, that really advertises a loss of faith in fiat currency. And then that leads to uh, securing other real assets um, as secondary you know, substitutes for gold, which would be silver or uh, energy, oil, um, mm-hmm. other things that can act as a, as a reserve uh, or a store, a store of value, mm-hmm. um, less perfect than gold, uh, which has been money for 5,000 years, but something that you can't print. And I, that's the end game is when we see this movement it'll probably and I, I think it's underway right now we're seeing mm-hmm. uh, you know gradual steady increases in the price of real assets mm-hmm. things that you can't control as I mentioned a fine art are, are just taking off mm-hmm. and um, uh, we're seeing the constant commodity index um, increasing this year quite strongly already so it's something to be monitored but it'll be shortages of, of real assets in exchange in exchange for currency. And when that happens, it, it's going to cause an interest rate disruption and it's going to cause a financial market disruption. And because it goes to the heart of the financial system, I don't th- think that anybody really knows the extent, the extent of it or the full consequences mm-hmm. of it. But it, it will force some sort of a, of a, of a uh, uh, currency reform. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely what I see happening is, is, is happening in my little area here in Queens, New York. When I talk to my realtor, um, Chris Shearn, down the street here, he tells me he sees money that's going into Brooklyn, which is a heated uh, real estate market now, coming up into yeah. areas of Queens, and people in one area of Queens now are moving up into my area of Queens, and that is pushing prices up. You mentioned real estate, diamonds, uh, you know, these kinds of... So this is part of the, part of the disease that we're... That is, this, that is, this is part of the um, the manifestation of the monetary disease that we're seeing yes. now. Is, is that right? And and so it doesn't. And so that if they suppress the gold price through yeah. this artificial means, uh, that doesn't mean you won't see the uh, the the I guess the the balloon popping out somewhere else, right? As as the as it's pushed down. And That's and correct. then and then so what's going to happen? So if we start to see these real asset prices really starting to rise dramatically, are we going to finally see the bond market? saying enough already, we're not going to take it. But then on the other side of it, David, is that people insist that the Fed can always print endless amounts of money. They can yeah. continue to print and push the, keep the interest rates low. What, how do you answer that? Or can they? Maybe they can't. Maybe at some point in time when, uh, you know, when, when prices start to rise very dramatically, the dollar will lose its credibility. Is that a possibility? 
Well, fiat currencies in particular, it, there's a lot of talk about the failure of the dollar, but I think that um, every currency has its issues. What we have is, you know, with price controls um, through the futures market, which is disassociated from physical demand, mm-hmm. you, you're, you've got really um, the entities which are fronting this, which is, are pro- we know, in the gold market, we know exactly who they are. They're the major bullion banks who are trading in London and New York. They're, they're battling market choice. And when you fight the markets, um, you will succeed for a period of time. Um, but it, it, it's like with currency devaluations, you know, we saw that the Bank of England was pushing an unsustainable policy in the, in the 90s, and, and uh, George Soros uh, managed to identify it, and uh, ultimately the, there was a massive retreat was forced on the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. So whenever you fight the markets, you will always fail. It's a question of time. What we're seeing now that are indicators of the failure of the ability to control the market is that even though they're setting the price and attempting to create a sentiment on gold that it's not a valuable asset, we can see from the physical drawdown uh, internationally that that the that the uh, physical demand is is increasing strongly, mm-hmm. and we are hearing of shortages. We hear of uh, major refineries in Switzerland, which have uh, disrupted flow of the raw gold to the refineries which should not be able to happen given the amount of gold which is above ground. And so we're hearing about breakdowns in the supply chains out there in the in the real asset market. There's mm-hmm. infinite available through the markets on the trading side, but if you're actually trying to secure the asset itself, we are hearing of, of a disrupted supply chain. So that's the indicator that we are starting to have market disruption because of this price interference. Well, it's, it's, we're just about out of time, David. What do you suggest that people need to do for themselves to protect themselves i mean gold has been suppressed yeah. gold is flying off our shelves it's going to yep. asia is that yep. what people need to do buy gold well uh, you know gold is is uh, historically an asset uh, for times of difficulty it's uh, compact and, and you can carry a large amount of wealth in a small space i, I think in terms of preparation the most important thing uh, for individuals is a strong social network. Um, you know, interacting with a group of people who work cooperatively together and have a, a shared set of values. I think also to disconnect from what I call the disinformation grid, but to tap out of the mainstream media and to, and to find alternative media sites, collect a huge amount of data as much as you can handle, filter it with a with a good skeptical eye. Um, tap into websites like Zero Hedge, which uh, really have replaced, for me, the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. I, I go into the Wall Street Journal once every six months now as opposed to daily. And then, yeah, absolutely, buy real assets and assets such as energy, um, land, uh, metals, uh, gold and silver, fine art, etc. Um, getting them out of the financial system as, as much as possible mm-hmm. because the financial system itself is something that is destabilized. And I think the last two points here in terms of preparation, I'd say become mentally nimble and as flexible as as possible. Mm-hmm. And that the, the, the key here is to avoid fear because it really interferes with your ability to understand what is going on. Mm-hmm. And I know my departure from my old frame of reference was very difficult for me because I had I held such strong beliefs. So it took me six months to really convert over to a more flexible uh, world mm-hmm. uh, world outlook. And then I think finally that the um, the primary uh, uh, tool for, uh, for as I see it uh, to control thought is really is war, and we have war being promoted as a distraction, um, but it really also interferes with people's ability to think and analyze. Mm-hmm. And you know I I think Dwight Eisenhower you know he talked about the uh, military industrial complex. Um, I'd, I'd say military, industrial, and banking complex with mm-hmm. the banking, you know, the monetary system at the top of it. But really, 
I think as Ron Paul does, is, is to really stand against and uh, speak out against the war lobby who are pushing us in the direction of war and really distracting us from the essential things that we need to do to get our house in order. Um, as our, you know, I'm a Canadian and you're an American, but I really see that we have shared interests here. and We really have to move quickly to get our house in order um, because the direction that we are, are moving in is going to take us into, into the realm of chaos if it continues. Oh, I'm afraid you're right, uh, David. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think your advice is well-founded. A, a good, strong social network is very, very important. Remember Remaining nimble, uh, keep your your mind open to what is really going on, and then uh, avoid fear and try to understand what's really going on. And yeah. and I and I thank you very much also for your reference to the uh, to with respect to war and foreign affairs, because I think it all ties in very very. Uh, much together. In fact, if it hadn't been for going off the gold standard, the United States would not be able to use its military-industrial complex to basically try to dictate to the world and to reduce sovereignty of nations, which is really what I think is going on with the powerful corporate banking interests behind the scenes, I'm afraid, that are really trying to uh, to push this agenda. So I, I really want to thank you, uh, David. It's been very good talking to you. I think, I think you've offered an awful lot of great insights, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for your time, Jay. I appreciate it. It's, it's been great, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Well, folks, don't go away. Speaking of foreign affairs and wars, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me uh, right after the commercial break. I think we're probably going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about most likely uh, the hot spots of the of the world day, Ukraine, no doubt, uh, or whatever else Daniel thinks is most important. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Daniel McAdams. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me a regular guest on this show, Daniel McAdams. Daniel heads up the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me back, Jay. I appreciate it. Well, it's really good to have you, and I'm sorry to hear you're struggling with a cold, but we'll, I'll, we'll try to get through it uh, the next 12 minutes or so uh, as easily as possible. You know, before we get into the topic that I really want to pick your brains on today, and that is, of course, the Ukraine, uh, I, I understand that you recently spoke at the Liberty Mastermind Forum in Las Vegas. How, how did that go? Yeah, I want to thank you, Jay, for putting me in touch with them. They invited me to, to come out and speak at their wonderful little symposium uh, Kerry Lutz and Robert Ian were such gracious hosts, and so I really owe you a debt of gratitude for putting me in touch with them. It was a wonderful conference. A lot of very uh, intelligent people there. Well, I, th- I think it just made tremendous sense for you to go, Daniel, because you have this view of the, uh, uh, you know, of the global geopolitical situation uh, that fits right into the economics that I think that is discussed by the free market-orientated Liberty Mastermind Forum. Well, let's have very little time today and a, and a big topic and a very important one to talk about, and that is the Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to just run sort of a little bit of a background past our listeners, and, and you correct me if, I've, if I'm wrong about anything, but just sort of set the stage for some questions questions that I have uh, for you, Daniel. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that this is perhaps the most important geo- geopolitical issue that we're now facing, uh, and I think it's between the, the Western military-industrial complex on the one hand and the Russians on the other over this Ukrainian issue. Um, so uh, it, it seems to me, this is, this is my understanding, the Ukrainian issue started to flare up last year when the Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych uh, he was democratically elected by the Ukrainian people, rejected a trade deal with Europe, uh, with the European Union, and he wanted to make um, – that the European Union wanted to make it actually with the Ukraine. He opted instead for uh, a what looks to me like a far superior deal from the Russians. And the Ukrainian uh, – the Ukraine was having a lot of financial difficulties at that time, but as I understand it, the deal was made by Russia was was considerably superior. As I understand it, something like $15 billion offered plus natural gas uh, supplies. Uh, by contrast, it's my understanding that the European Union offered something like only maybe a few hundred million dollars, plus they were going to require the Ukraine to be attached to the uh, to the EU. Do I do I have the story right so far, Daniel? Yeah, that's basically right. You know, it was an it was an association agreement with the EU. Uh, so it, it it did carry with it a lot of uh, hoops that had to be jumped through. It had a lot of fairly intrusive requirements, you know, human rights and all of these sorts of things that um, that the EU likes to tout. The other problem with it is that it, re- it required exclusivity. It would have precluded Ukraine from uh, negotiating a similar deal with Russia. And that didn't make a lot of sense from, I would guess, the Ukrainian perspective because Russia's its next-door neighbor and biggest trading partner. So contrary to what's reported, there was this exclusivity problem uh, that wasn't such a good deal. But, you know, he didn't reject the offer. He simply said he wanted to postpone signing the association agreement. So the door was by no means slammed. Well, Ukraine is a very important 
it's it's a very important piece of land. Um, obviously, there are pipelines that flow through there. It is the breadbasket of the of the, of Russia essentially. So you can understand why Russia and its right, of course, right. It abuts Russia. It's a, it's their next door neighbor. It's not far away. So you can understand why the Russians may want to look at that fairly jealously, as if you know this is uh, why would they why would they accept being locked out of this? On the one hand, the other thing is I have to ask you is why would uh, Yanukovych? Uh, how could he be justified in? rejecting Russia in this situation where Russia offered him so much more money, natural gas, uh, and and this exclusivity thing that would have tech, taken him away from Russia and having the, the ability to trade with Russia. How could Yanukovych have sided with the West uh, against Russia, and, and how would that be fair to, to this man, uh, to the people that elected him? Yeah, you know, it's, Ukraine is such a delicate balancing act because there is such deep divisions between East and West, historically. You know, Ukraine is sort of a successor country to the Soviet Union. It, it, it doesn't really have its own history. Parts have been cobbled together from other countries, including parts of Poland, that were cobbled into the West. So it's, a del- it's going to be a delicate act in the best of times. But this demand that he side with one side or the other really fractured it. And I, um, you know, I wonder if, if this wasn't sort of pre-planned, because in and of itself, postponing the signature on the EU treaty, to me, doesn't seem like it should have been such a big deal. He didn't say, forget it, take a hike, go back to Brussels. He said, you know, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to wait for a while. But then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, and a revolution unfolded. And you've got to wonder, whether, whether, was there pre-planning in place? And it's kind of funny, there was uh, Victoria Newland, who's famous for this intercepted phone call where she was planning the overthrow, uh, she spoke before um, some big corporate sponsors uh, not long ago, and she said, we've put $5 billion into the democracy efforts in Ukraine, and we want to give the Ukrainian people the future they deserve. So mm. it almost reads like an admission that we've been fooling around for a long time, and if you look at the millions of dollars that USAID has put into these subversive NGOs, you've got to wonder if maybe they didn't use this pretty unimportant shift uh, as a way to ratchet things up and really get the revolution they were they were you know pushing for. Yeah, as an excuse. Well, you know, I'm I'm reading the Huffington Post account of this conflict, and and they really do make it sound as if it was a spontaneous uprising by the people of the Ukraine. Well, if the people of the Ukraine elected Yanukovych. Uh, I know times were tough there, and people tend to turn against their leaders when times are tough. Uh, financially, the country's in big trouble in, in many ways, which is why they turned uh, to the Russians and to, and to the European Union uh, for help. Um, but do you, So you, you're suggesting that this may not have been a spontaneous uprising. I mean, is it something like, uh, after all, we've had John Perkins on the show has talked about the yes. modus operandi post-World War II has been, starting with the... Uh, with the overthrow of a democratically elected government in Iran, it seems to me that, I mean, there have been all of these supposedly spontaneous uprising through Africa, through North Africa, now, you know, in Syria and all these places. How spontaneous is this, uh, Daniel? Is there evidence, is there, is there substantial evidence on an ongoing basis that these are not all that spontaneous, that they are the NGOs, the uh, CIA, perhaps the, um, you know, NSA, whoever else is involved that is fermenting 
revolution in these yeah. places, trying to play on the unhappiness of people uh, so that you can cause chaos and then allow um, uh, you know, this, these large corporate interests to invade? Well, I think you're absolutely correct, and it was perfect to bring in Perkins because if you look at the pattern, it fits his wonderful Confessions of an Economic Hitman book perfectly. First, you try to cajole the leadership into signing a deal that benefits your economic interests. You push and you apply pressure. If that doesn't work, you threaten civil unrest. Uh, if that doesn't work, you get civil unrest going and see if you can overthrow it that way. And if that doesn't work, you have a direct invasion. So it really is something out of the playbook that Perkins thankfully uh, outlined for the rest of us. So, yeah, I think there, you certainly could see that. And spontaneous, this is well organized. These people came to the protests completely decked out in riot gear, baseball bats. A lot of them were well armed. That's not usually how you go to a peaceful demonstration. Yeah. You know, and they, they, they killed many police officers. They were violent from the beginning. Uh, but let's not forget one thing. You're talking to only about a few thousand extremely violent people. Uh, and there were, of course, a lot of people who innocently did go down there and protest. Sure. You know? and, they, and they had legitimate uh, right to protest. There's no question. But you had a few thousand very violent people uh, that went and, they, and through violence they overthrew the government. But how in a country of 45 million or so people do a few thousand have any kind of democratic legitimacy? You know, that's the question that I always have. How are they somehow the legitimate government now that they've taken these positions of power when they are, in fact, such a small minority? Taking positions of power through, through force rather than through the ballot box. I thought we fought a world war to make the world safe for democracy, uh, and yet it seems to me that the United States has a history of overthrowing clandestinely, overthrowing people that are popularly elected. I mean, it happened in Chile. There's many... I think, of course, the of course attaching this uh, this activity uh, directly to the United States government is is one thing. Perhaps it's not the United States government. Perhaps it's the a global military industrial complex of the West that is looking to get rich and to tear down sovereignty of nations to force their own corporate interest into the picture. That's what I believe, firmly do believe, Daniel. Yeah. And one of the things that I would like to just get your thoughts on with two minutes left only uh, is uh, uh, James Rickards talked about in Currency Wars. He, he talked about uh, the possibility, since a lot of countries like, like China and Russia and others don't have the same military superiority that we have, that they can do games in, in economics. They can play some currency war games. And one of the things he suggested, there could be a big boomerang if the United States continued to push into the sovereignty uh, and sovereign interest of, uh, of various nations. And, and, you know, we're seeing China now hooking up with Russia on this issue. I think you've pointed out at the Ron Paul Institute that the United States is not all that popular right now with what it's doing, and even, even the U.K. And, and Germany is turning against uh, the notions of sanctions. Well, uh, uh, Putin said that if we install sanctions and try to kick them out of the G8, there will be a boomerang, and that's exactly a boomerang effect against the West, and that's exactly the word that uh, that um, was used in uh, currency wars. You know, I just have to wonder, Daniel, maybe the Chinese are accumulating gold like mad. The Chinese and Russians have made no bones about their desire to un unseat the United States dollar, which is being used to finance all these military incursions everywhere. 
and who knows all this fermentation of political unrest that's going on. Do you think that uh, there may be something very profound? As a matter of fact, I'd like to just point out to my listeners, you definitely should go to the Ron Paul Institute and read Daniel's work and lots of other work of people in uh, regarding this issue and many others. But Daniel, you know, you, you uh, the last issue, uh, last little uh, essay that you wrote, you thought that we could be, um, this could be something very important longer term taking place here. I can't exact, exactly remember your exact words, but you suggested that if the U.S. is unable to continue uh, pursuing its interest here, this could be a major turning point. Do you see it that way? Sure, absolutely, and I think we've already heard from people that are around the Russians that um, have thrown out trial balloons that, you know, we we don't want to do this, but if you push the sanctions too hard, we may well have to abandon the dollar. We know that the Chinese have expressed sympathy for what the Russians are doing, and now we see that the Indian government has ex- expressed sympathy for what the Russians are doing. So you have two enormous countries who happen to have a lot of gold. Um, we supposedly have a lot, but no one's seen it. <laughs> you know, and uh, who knows if, if they're pushed too far, something like this could happen. You know, on, on Lou Rockwell's site recently, there was a, an article quoting um, John Williams of uh, Shadow Stats saying that uh, any kind of move like this by Russia could lead to hyperinflation for the U.S. Yeah. So, you know, it's extraordinarily dangerous for us financially, uh, for, for us in terms of our own security. And I really don't understand why the U.S. government is pushing this so far for such a relatively insignificant uh, part of the world. You know? Well, that's a good question, Daniel. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Folks, it's the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Go there. You can catch up with what Daniel writes, what Ron Paul says. A lot of other people are talking about what the real, uh, the real agenda of the United States is and the uh, global financial elite. So don't um, be sure to go there and keep up with this Ukrainian situation to get a different view than you're going to hear from the mainstream. So thank you very much, Daniel, for being with me uh, again. We'll have you back very soon again. Thanks, Jay. Well, folks, don't go away because I'll be right back with a summary of today's show and also a mention about next week's guest and uh, another item or two if I have time. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. 
Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, with some closing thoughts about today's show and a word about next week's guest. It was certainly good to have David Jensen join me for the first time today. I think he had some great insights into the manipulation of the gold markets and why those manipulations certainly cannot go on indefinitely. And I think what very few people understand is the connection between fiat money, how evil it is, how it is destroying the very social fiber and the moral fiber of our country. It is, in fact, a theft. And it is at the very basic uh, fundamentals of the Judeo-Christian fundamentals that, that robbery is wrong. Private property, you are entitled to the property that is given that you have earned. And that is something that, uh, of course, is being thrown out the window with, uh, with fiat money. It also is what enables the United States military-industrial complex or the global military-industrial complex of the Western world that Eisenhower warned us about. That's what's happening and that we're using it, I think, clandestinely to overthrow governments, to take over and to get rid of sovereignty through various treaties, the TPP, NAFTA, etc. It's, it's an evil agenda that's going on, folks. I believe it's very, very wrong. And, uh, but I think you need to be aware of what it is. We're going to continue this as long as the U.S. dollar stands, as long as people are able to con us into accepting dollars. Uh, and, uh, and that's the problem. What should you do? Well, I think you got to get out of the dollar, get into gold. David Jensen suggests a, a network of friends. I think faith, a spiritual faith, is going to be very important for people as we face some of the most difficult times in our history, I think, in the years ahead. Uh, so in any event, uh, we are out of time. Next week, our special guest will be Richard Duncan, who will give us his take on quantitative, e- quantitative easing and the global economy and why he thinks quantitative e- easing will not occur. And also Bob Kramer is going to be with me. He's the CEO of a company with some remarkable high-grade gold assays that sponsored this show, uh, Canamax Resources. It's going to be a great show next week. I hope you'll be with me. In closing, I want to thank Tacey Trump and Matt Widener for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. 
the company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 